Uh, I don't know if you guys read comic books or watch cartoons anymore, but <clears throat> years ago, it was a popular foil in comic books and cartoons. Some crises would would come into the life of whoever's involved, and then this uh, this superhero, this masked Superman, would sort of come out of nowhere, and he'd save the day, and then just as quickly he'd sort of go into oblivion, and everybody would be scratching their head. Do you remember what they'd say? Who was that masked man? Who was that masked man? Comes out of nowhere, saves the day, goes into nowhere, leaving everybody scratching their head. Who was that masked man? Uh, We have sort of our version of a masked man this morning, a mystery man in the scriptures in Genesis 14. You can turn there if you want. That's where we're going to be hanging our hat for about half the time this morning anyway. Not a comic book hero, certainly, but a very strange, hard to understand, hard to figure out individual who, like the comic book superheroes, comes out of nowhere, makes this significant impact in the life of Abraham, Abram still called at this point in his life, and then disappears. And we're sort of scratching our head trying to make sense. Who is this and what do we think of him? The mystery man's name is Melchizedek, and he not only plays a significant role in Abram's life here in Genesis 14, but as you'll see, he also plays a significant life or role in the life of Abram's heirs also. <clears throat> By the way, this is one of those mornings where you're going to have to work at paying attention. So if you feel your nap coming on, go grab a cup of coffee or whatever. Just to say the passage and where we're going with it, you might think it's a little tedious, but I just encourage you, I admonish you, I exhort you, hang in there, stick with it. If you remember Genesis 14, this was the story where Abram rallied the men of his house, over 300, we said he clearly was a man of wealth and size. He, he rallies his troops. He grabs some of his friends there in the land of promise. And they run north to rescue his nephew Lot and his family, who with lots of other families from cities along the east side of the land of promise had been taken captive by these marauding kings from the east. Good to see you. Um, so they go up. They do a surprise sneak attack at night. They overwhelm these guys, amazingly so, and then they're bringing back all the people and all the loot that they'd redeemed there. That's where we pick up this morning at verse 17. So Genesis 14, 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abram, at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. We understand this to be near the city, what we'd call Jerusalem today. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem, by the way, uh, becomes later the city of Jerusalem, name change, or partial name change anyway. He brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all, or we would say a tithe. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord, uh, all caps if you're reading in your Bible means that's the personal name for God among the Jews, Yahweh, 
I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre. Let them take their share. So you've got Abram coming back. He's defeated the kings of the earth. He's got the people and the wealth. And he interacts with two different kings, two very different kinds of kings, two very different results or interaction. We're going to start with the king of Salem. We'll end with the king of Salem. In between, we'll look at the king of Sodom. Starting with the king of Salem. Melchizedek greets Abram with bread and wine or refreshment, or this is thought maybe to include a whole meal. He brings out a meal to Abram. It says he's a priest of God Most High. And this is unusual. You know, when you look at the life of Abram, God calls Abram out of the land of idolatry, Ur of the Chaldees, and then from Haran a little north of there, and he calls him down to sort of isolate him as a nomad in the land of promise which itself we've already seen is a land filled with idolatry. So then you get to this passage and it says there's a guy here in this city who is a priest of God Most High. And I'm scratching my head wondering, well, how is that? I thought Abram was God's man. He's sort of the lone guy on the planet. But no, lo and behold, here's somebody else who knows the living and true God. And you read this and because you know there's other gods and priests to those gods, you scratch your head and think, well... Maybe God Most High isn't the God Abram knows. Maybe this is just a pagan deity. <clears throat> but if you look at verse 22, we're not left with that option because it says, Abram swore to Yahweh, God Most High. So we're sure that Melchizedek is worshiping. He's a priest of the same God that Abram serves. There's no doubt about that. So he comes out from the city. He blesses Abram in the name of God Most High. He praises God Most High who gave Abram the victory. So Melchizedek knows that, like we should, it's not always to the swift or the powerful that it's up to God who delivers the victory. And Melchizedek knows that and he praises or thanks God for giving Abram the victory. And then Abram responds by giving this priest king of Salem 10% of the wealth he and his small army recovered from those marauding kings of the east. So the king blesses Abram, praises God, and he in turn is blessed by Abram with a tithe. So that's Melchizedek, the king of Salem, briefly. Then you switch to the king of Sodom. This is an unusual interaction all the way around. So you get to the king of Sodom. We don't know much about him. Scripture doesn't record anything else about him. We only know that he's the leader, he's the king of that city that is notorious both in his own day and throughout history. Uh, as the most wicked place on earth, this place unusually known for its wickedness and immorality. The king does not greet Abram, but he tells him what he'd like him to do with the wealth. Take the wealth, leave me the people. This is odd because it sounds like the king of Sodom is this very generous guy who's not into material wealth. Abram, go ahead and take all the good stuff and I'll sort of putter away with the people. Now, <clears throat> because we know the way Abram responds to him, whatever is behind the king's motive in this, he's not a good guy. And Abram doesn't treat him like a good guy. He just says, you know, I wouldn't take anything from you. I wouldn't take a sandal thong from you, king of Sodom. Part of what's going on here is probably this. Abram 
is the guy who's gone out and won the battle. He's the victor. And it's up to the victor to dispose of the spoils. And so you see, when Abram gives a tenth or a tithe to Melchizedek, he's the victor, choosing to do what he will with the spoils he brought back. So when the king of Sodom says, hey, this is what you do and this is what I'll do, he's presuming to take the place of Abram. And so Abram responds in the negative, I won't take anything from you. So in this interaction, this king presumes to dictate terms to Abram. He's rebuked by Abram, and he's left with the remainder of everything. So two kings, two conversations, and two very different responses from Abram. Now, we're going to wade through. So this is the part you've got to hang in there with me on. We're going to wade through trying to answer this question, who is Melchizedek? This guy with a funny name, who is he? Why is he here? Why is he important? Why, why do we care? Why should we care? So, hang in, hang in there with me. Melchizedek first. You guys know in the Bible, generally, it's important what a person's or a place's name is because the name means something. So, in Melchizedek's case, Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. That's what his name means. It says he was the king of Salem. Salem is Jerusalem. And it's the city of peace. So he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of the city of peace also. He's also a priest of God Most High. So this much we know for sure from Genesis 14. He's the king of the city-state, later called Jerusalem. He's a priest to the same true and living God that Abram's serving. And Abram honors him as God's representative and as Abram's superior when Abram pays him a tenth of the spoils of war. That's what we know from this passage. Now, if Genesis 14 is all we had, it really would be this masked mystery guy because we wouldn't know anything else. But Melchizedek's story doesn't end in Genesis 14. If you'd like to, you can turn to Psalm 110, which is the next place Melchizedek turns up. Probably late in his life, David writes this psalm, Psalm 110. And it's assumed to be probably end of his life when his son Solomon is going to take the throne. David writes there about God crowning, coronating the new king. And actually when it says, the Lord says to my Lord, David will be the subservient king, briefly, until he dies, while his son Solomon takes the throne. So this is a messianic psalm, David speaking probably about Solomon, but like Many Old Testament passages that are messianic, it speaks past Solomon to Christ. So Psalm 110, the Lord or Yahweh says to my Lord, that would be my king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, that's a prominent hill in the city of Jerusalem, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 4, The Lord has sworn he won't change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So David, a thousand years or so after Genesis 14 in the story of Melchizedek, brings up Melchizedek's name again and says that God's king will also be God's priest. So David is the first Jewish king to sit on the throne of Melchizedek. If you remember... The story, it's David that captures the city of the Jebusites, Jerusalem. It's, they don't possess it until David takes it. 
He's the first Jewish king to sit on the same throne as Melchizedek, this priest king, and maybe thinking about that. When David writes this coronation psalm, again, probably for Solomon, he says that just as Melchizedek was both king and priest in the city of Jerusalem, David's heir will also be king and priest like Melchizedek on the throne in the city of Jerusalem. He looks back to Melchizedek and he compares his heir and ultimately the Messiah to Melchizedek as this person who holds two crowns, as it were, or holds two different but important roles, king and priest. I think David makes this comparison for a couple of reasons here. If you told a Jew in David's day that someone from the tribe of Judah would be a priest, they'd know that something's wrong with you. You couldn't be a Jewish priest unless you were a descendant of Levi. So if David says that his heir from the tribe of Judah is going to be a priest, it cannot be the same kind of priests in the rest of Israel. Because David can't be a priest. His descendants can't be a priest. They're not from Levi. So if he says, my son is going to be both a king and a priest, it can't be the same kind of priesthood that he knows about in Israel at that time. So he goes back to Melchizedek and says, you know, there was a superior priesthood and that's what my heir is going to be. He's going to be better than the Israeli priest. He's going to be like Melchizedek. Uh, The second thing is this. David implies that Melchizedek's priesthood has no end. And this is where it gets a little odd and it'll get more odd when we get into Hebrews here in just a second. He implies when he says, you're a priest forever, like Melchizedek. He implies that Melchizedek was a priest and that his priesthood never ended. And you're scratching your head thinking, what what do you mean his priesthood never ended? We assume that he lives, he dies, and, and that's that. But Hebrews brings up this same thought. But clearly speaking beyond anything that Solomon could have represented, David says his heir, who's king and priest, will have a priesthood that will never end. And somehow he says that's like Melchizedek. Melchizedek's priesthood never ended. Now, if you want, you can turn to Hebrews because that's where we'll spend the rest of our time in the Scripture. Melchizedek comes up again in Hebrews. And quick reminder, Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians in the early days of the church, and they're getting hammered on all sides by their family members, there's persecution, their lands are being seized. It's a tough go to be a Christian as a Jew, especially if you stayed in Palestine. And so this letter was written to these Jewish Christians to tell them, hang in there, don't give up. There's nothing for you to go back to in Judaism because that was the temptation. Just become a good Jew again. If you remember in the Roman Empire... Judaism was a protected religion. Christianity was not until Constantine. So if you were a Jew, you still were afforded some, some legal rights, some legal protections. If you were a Christian, there were none. So there was a strong temptation for these early believers to go back to Judaism. And so this letter is written to them to tell them, there's nothing for you to go back to. That everything we knew as Jews in the Jewish religion, it was to point us forward to Christ. And Christ is superior to everything we had 
in Judaism. He's a better priest. He's a better sacrifice. He's got a better covenant. You name it. That's the point. And that's where Melchizedek comes up again in this attempt to show these early Christians that Jesus is better than anything they had. So, in Hebrews 5, the author brings up Melchizedek. Verses 5 and 6, it says there, Christ didn't glorify himself to become a high priest, but he who said to him, and this would be God the Father, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And sorry, as we I digress briefly on each of these. Psalm 2 is messianic. And Psalm 2 says, the nations rage, and the nations raise their fists to God and say, we're going to throw your shackles off of us. And it says, God's in heaven. And he looks down and he laughs. And he says, well, the trouble is, I've already installed my king. And my king is my son, this one that I've begotten. So Psalm 2 is messianic in which God the Father says of his son, this is my son and this is my appointed king. And then in the next verse here, verse 6, just as he also says in another passage, now quoting Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Hebrews points out he's going to be king and priest. So just as God had ordained Jesus as the divine king, the promised messianic king, he's also this promised priest that will rule forever. Hebrews 7, skipping way ahead, Hebrews 7 says, this describes Melchizedek from what we know of him in Genesis 14. Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was, first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And this probably goes back to Psalm 110, your priest forever like Melchizedek. A couple of options on this. You read Genesis 14, there's a king. His, he's got a great uh, meaning to his name. He shines in this brief story. Uh, but then you're told here, he doesn't have a father. He doesn't have a mother. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. Then you're saying, where do you get that? And what does that mean? There's a couple options on understanding what we're supposed to get from Hebrews here. One is this. In Genesis, the book that uh, highlights who you come from and what line you're in, uh, Melchizedek appears suddenly on the stage with no reference to anyone else. And there's nothing to conclude his story to tell us that he died. So one way to understand this is literarily that we say, well, as far as the story goes, Abram, or Melchizedek has no lineage. We don't, he has no beginning. And as far as the information in Genesis goes, he has no end. So literarily we can say, no mom, no dad, no beginning, no end. That's one option. Literarily, we don't know anything else, and so this is what we conclude. The other option is this. This is one I lean towards. Uh, that Melchizedek was actually more than a man, that he was not mortal. Many commentators, more so in the past than today, they think Melchizedek is, in fact, God the Son on earth. Jesus, before his incarnation, that Melchizedek is God the Son on earth. And that that's why Hebrews says he had no beginning. He has no end. 
He's a priest forever. Now, God the Son, before the incarnation in which he becomes Jesus, God the Son had been on the earth before. In fact, you go to Genesis 19 and, you know, he visits Abram. And he eats with him. He has a a corporal body which he can sit down with Abram and eat a meal. So if we said this could be Jesus, this would not be all that unusual because Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, the Trinity, he appears in other portions of the Old Testament in other stories with a physical body. We're not sure. Either way, I lean towards the second. Hang hang with me. This all there's a good ending on this. So we're waiting through, we're getting there. Uh, verse 4, still in Hebrews 7, Observe how great this man was to whom Abram the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Guys, I'm paraphrasing verse 5 and 6 because their syntax is hard to get through. Jewish priests collected tithes from everyone else, but in the case of Melchizedek, the Jewish priests actually paid tithes to Melchizedek, showing that his priesthood was superior to theirs. The superior gets the tithe. And then at the end of verse 6, it says, He blessed the one who had the promise. That would be Abram. Verse 7, Without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Just for clarification, we oftentimes today say, God bless you. Or, may God bless you. This is different than the blessing we're talking about here. If I say, God bless you today, I'm generally sort of offering a prayer that you'd enjoy God's blessing, whatever that looks like. This blessing, though, is different, and it's almost like an object that one person could literally give to another. So that when Melchizedek blessed Abram, it wasn't a may God bless you. Abram was blessed because Melchizedek blessed him. He gave him a blessing just like if I give you a cup of coffee, real And so you see this in the stories of the patriarchs. The blessing was something important. So when you read the story of Jacob and Esau, this is a huge deal. So when Isaac blesses Jacob, he gave him something that he couldn't give to anyone else. So when Esau comes back in and says, is there nothing left for you to give me? He says, I can't give it to you. I blessed and gave it to your brother. The blessing in this sense was like a real thing that one person, a superior, could give to another person. And it was always that direction. The greater gave to the lesser. So, Melchizedek was greater than Abram because Melchizedek was the one giving the blessing. You see the same thing again in the patriarchs. We're winding down. Verses 8 and through 10. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. In that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, the Levites, paid tithes, he was still in the loins, in the body of his father, when Melchizedek met him. So this says, uh, all of Abram's descendants were, so to speak, still in him when he stood with the king of, Mel- uh, king of Salem and gave him those funds. So it was just as if his descendants gave Melchizedek those funds too. So... The priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Israel because the priests of Israel in Abram showed that Melchizedek was superior by paying him a tithe. This priesthood is greater than the priesthood of the Jews. Melchizedek is also greater than Abram 
because it's Melchizedek who gives the blessing to Abram. It's not Abram to him. We tend to think of Abram at the top of the top in the Old Testament stories. No, Hebrews says, Melchizedek was greater than Abram. So the author of this letter, Hebrews, wants the Jewish Christians to make sure they understand that Jesus' priesthood was superior to the priesthood of Levi. And he shows that Melchizedek had a greater priesthood that pointed to the Lord Jesus himself, which is the point of Hebrews. And finishing out at verse 17, it's attested of him, Jesus now, your priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So, this mystery man out of Genesis 14 becomes the means where the early Jewish Christians understood that Jesus was better than everything they had because this was used as a comparison to show Melchizedek's greater than Abram. He's greater than our priesthood. He's the one we need to hang on to. On applications, two things here. The first is this. We've hardly touched on it, but this has been a point we've seen in Abram's story before. Abram is offered wealth from the king of Sodom, and he turns it down. And sometimes in your life and mine, the right question to ask you when opportunity that looks like success or wealth or blessing or something good, something desirable. Sometimes when opportunities present themselves, the right question to ask yourself is not, do I have a right to this? Is it within my rights to take this thing and to enjoy it? Sometimes the right question to ask yourself is, by taking this opportunity, accepting this gift, whatever this positive thing appearance-wise is, how will that impact me, God's work in me, and God's work through me? Sometimes the question isn't, is it my right? It's what will the impact be? So Abram looks at the wealth that the king of Sodom has to offer him, and he says, I won't take any of it because I don't want my name and God's work tainted by association with the king of Sodom. And all Sodom could give Abram was material wealth. And Abram's not after material wealth. He's after something better. And as we've seen before, when you go into the next chapter in Genesis 15, you remember each time Abram turns away from something and obeys God, God blesses him every time. And that happens in Genesis 15 too. So after Abram has walked away from the wealth that Sodom could give him, God says, Abe, I'm your shield and I'm your reward. And he reaffirms the promise of children and land. So it's as if, again, Abram turns down all this wealth and he loses nothing. Because God says, I'm your man. I'm here to defend you. I'm here to reward you. And I'm going to give you everything I promise to you. So be careful in life. The fact that an opportunity presents itself to you does not mean you should take it. Ask yourself, what's the impact of accepting this gift, this blessing, this reward, this acknowledgement, whatever it is, what's the impact of that on me, on God's work in my life, and on God's work through me to others? What's the impact? The last thing, too, uh, just on the application, once in a while teachings end up, you know, sort of strategically, I would say providentially, landing on the right time in ways you couldn't have foreseen. Uh, We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper during worship here in just a little bit. And I couldn't think of a better Sunday in which Melchizedek would be brought up than this morning. So 
just rehearse in your head with me. Just go back over this story for just a second and recount just the key points. In Genesis 14, the king of righteousness and peace meets Abram outside the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace. He brings him bread and wine and blesses him in God's name. A thousand years later, David in Psalm 110, and it's reaffirmed in Hebrews, talks about Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and peace, that he pointed forward to a greater king and a greater priest that we now know is the Lord Jesus Christ. And another thousand years later, after David, the Lord Jesus offers his body and blood outside Jerusalem, the city of peace, in order to bless us. And he leaves two elements behind, the bread and the wine, the same elements Melchizedek brought out to Abram, Jesus uses those same elements to tell us to remember him in his death and resurrection on our behalf. Same thing. Same thing. Beyond that, when you read Paul in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, as often as you eat the bread and drink the blood, you you do so until the Lord returns. So that every time we have the Lord's Supper, we not only look back to what Christ did for us, outside the walls of Jerusalem, but we also do so looking forward to his return so that we can say with confidence, there's one day in which Jesus Christ will return to the earth and just like David, he will sit on the throne of Melchizedek in the city of Jerusalem as God's choice for priest and king. So you've got this mystery man this mass superhero in Genesis 14 that we don't know much about what to make of him, and yet he comes up again and again in the Scriptures, and you realize his importance in the Scriptures has to do with the fact that he points forward to the Lord Jesus. Now, whether or not this is Jesus before the Incarnation, I don't know. We can't hang our hat on that. But it is very, very clear that when we read about Melchizedek, we're supposed to see him fast forward to the Lord himself. So the king of righteousness and peace brings bread and wine outside the city of peace and offers it to Abram. And Jesus, 2,000 years later, tells his disciples, take the bread, drink the, the juice. I'm the king of righteousness. I'm the king of peace. Do these things in remembrance of me. And let me close with this passage out of, if I've got it, out of uh, Hebrews 7 there. He affirms again at verse 21, he says, The Lord has sworn he won't change his mind forever. You are a priest forever. And this is the conclusion. Jesus has become the guarantee, we're read, of a better covenant. Those former priests, those Jewish priests, on one hand, they existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. You always need a priest because you always sin. But they died, so they wouldn't work. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. He's always there for you. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Let's pray. 
Lord, I'm struck how often um, it's not what we don't understand about the scriptures that's important. It's what we do. And there's so much we don't know about Melchizedek. And yet what's important is what we do, Lord, that he was always meant to point us, to point David's heirs, to point Jews, and to point Christians to, to you and to the king you've chosen and to the priest you've instituted. Lord, I think of this, these words in Hebrews that says he can save forever those who draw near to God through him, that he always lives to make intercession for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would uncover our eyes, that we would see Christ in his glory, that we would know him as the one that our hearts need and long for. Lord, in the enigmas of the Bible, help us to learn what we can and leave the rest with you. But Lord, help us to hang our hat, help us to hang on to your Son, the King of Righteousness, the Prince of Peace, the one who offered his body, his blood, on our behalf outside Jerusalem and who left us those elements, we'll share in a bit to remember his great love for us and that priesthood like Melchizedek he holds forever for our benefit. In his name, Lord, we pray. Amen.